It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Do you want to say it or shall I? 180. Not quite. Uh, Sid Waddell? Sid Waddell was the commentator there, wasn't mm, he? Mm. Most people will not know what we're talking about, will they? Th- they probably won't. And yet at the same time, I would say that since about episode 150, you've been counting down the weeks until we get to 180, just so you could say 180 in the style of a darts announcer. And I have got a little quiz question for you. So, so basically, um, 180 is when you get three treble 20s in darts. Um What's the pinnacle of a dart player's achievement? Is it if you manage to do a nine dart finish? It is. It's the yeah. minimum minimum number of darts you can use to get down from 501, yeah. You've got to finish on a double. And who was the first person ever to do a televised 180? Was it John Lowe, the gentleman of darts? It was John Lowe. In what competition? Oh, I mean, I'm guessing it was the BDO, but I, I don't know. I mean, that's pretty close. I think it was the MFI World Match Play, actually. Wow. Uh, in 1984, I was really enthusiastic about darts as a child. I used to watch a lot of darts. There wasn't much else on television, but I used to watch a lot of it. It's so unlikely, knowing what else we know about you. Um, I'm a man of many surprises. You are. It's, it's difficult to explain to anyone younger just how recognisable and famous these darts players were at the time. Really were. John Lowe, Eric Bristow, Jockey Wilson. Mm. What about if I test you on some nicknames of darts players? Okay, go on. We'll start with an easy one, Eric Bristow. Crafty Cockney. Yeah, do you know why he was called the Crafty Cockney? Because he was a Crafty Cockney. Yes, but he, (laughs) he, he also went to America, I think played darts in a pub in California called the Crafty Cockney, and they gave him a shirt... And he wore it, and that became his nickname. Oh. Do you want to know something else about um, Eric Bristow? Yes. He got dartitis. Oh, what's that? It's basically, you heard of the yips in golf? 
Yes. It's, it's yes. that, but for darts, there is a condition called dartitis. Jeez. Uh, you don't want that. Okay, any, go on, keep going. Bobby George. Uh, his nickname, I have no idea. Bobby Dazzler. Uh, was he slightly earlier? I think he's still going. He now calls himself the King of Darts, and he comes onto the stage oh. wearing a cloak and a crown holding a candelabra, and he walks onto Queen's We Are The Champions. Sounds, sounds quite good. Maybe I should do that. Uh, maybe I'll try it in Parliament. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what about what about the aforementioned John Lowe? Did he have a nickname? Well, they did call him the Gentleman of Darts for a while, but I, th- I think more recently uh, he's known as Old Stoneface. He, John Lowe was my actually my favourite. There was a de- decorum or dignity to John Lowe that some other darts players perhaps lacked. Uh, the, um, but, you know, I just used love the numbers. And also they were incredibly good mathematicians, the darts players, because you'd have to, in order to get, you'd have to finish on a double. And so they'd have to work out at very quick speed what they were going to, you know what I mean? Anyway, I think we've probably bored our listeners, actually. Oh, I, th- I think we've scintillated them and we didn't even get on to Jockey Wilson, whose nickname was Jockey, of course. Jockey on the Oki. He was also known as Gumsy because he lost all of his own teeth by the age of 28. Wow. Interesting. Uh, well, congratulations on... Re- I know you've been looking forward to it, so congratulations once again on reaching episode number... 180! And congratulations to you too. Hey, did you see that um, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen now have a podcast inspired by ours? I know, but it's like, why did you send that to me? It just made me feel a bit depressed. <laughs> I think it's an awful title. What's their title? Renegades, which was his code name, I think, but it's, it's not good. I mean, I like both of them enormously. But... You don't realise, by the way, that you may be the Jeffocracy, but I am the shadow president of the COP. Congratulations! <laughs> because I had my first uh, questions opposite Alok Sharma, who is the president of the COP. The COP is the um, conference of the parties, the UN conference, COP26 uh, in Glasgow this November. And Lindsay Hall called him President Sharma and called me the shadow president. I've also worked out that, you know how Barack Obama or the president of the United States is POTUS? Yes. So I've worked out that Alok is pot cop. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes me shadow pot cop. Well, that, that's spot cop. <laughs> yes, spot cop. Very good. Um, so there you go. I'm not putting it on my business card, uh, shadow president of the cop, but it is very important. But anyway, I, I so I'm the shadow president. Now, let me just ask you, if you were the president of the United States, what would your nickname be? Or indeed the president of somewhere? Oh, what, like my code name? Yeah. Amongst my security detail? Mustache. Mustachio. Mustachio. Yeah. Okay, that's Mustache. good. Yeah. Um, what would I be? Well, have you ever had one? Not that I know of. As a member of the Privy Council, leader of the opposition? Maybe there was one, you just don't want to find out about it. Wallace? Wallace, yes. Um, lightning? Lightning, why li- lightning? In view of my running. <laughs> oh, I was trying to think of something to do with your cold water swimming, like the seal. The seal. The walrus. Walrus. Uh, hang on, I think there was a golf player known as the walrus. Anyway, well, I think we digress. Well, should we, um, should we move on to what we're going to be talking about this week then? Well, it's a really important subject this week, Jeff. We're talking about calls for a new beverage report. A shocking analysis published by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation a few weeks ago showed that even before the pandemic, Britain was facing a crisis of poverty and destitution. One in five people in the UK were in poverty and 2.4 million people, including half a million children, faced destitution, which is defined as lacking two or more basic essentials, such as food, heating or shelter. 
So, so in one of the richest countries in the world, we have a terrible situation as regards poverty and the war is it could get worse as the economic impact of the COVID crisis continues. We're discussing how our welfare state can address these problems and provide a safety net for those who need it. First, we're going to be asking what we can learn from the original beverage report, which was published in the middle of the Second World War and proposed solutions to the poverty and destitution of the time. And it's a great conversation that we're going to have with Nicholas Timmins, who's author of The Five Giants, a biography of the welfare state, about how the report came about, the impact it had and the lessons it offers us for, for today. And then we're talking to Tanya Burkhart from the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion at the LSE. We'll be asking her what COVID has shown about the holes in our welfare safety net and how we can begin to fix them. And our cheerful person is children's TV presenter, vet and author Jess French. It's World Book Day this Thursday and we're going to be talking about the book that she's coming out, especially for World Book Day. It's called Protect the Planet. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful, of course, directly relates to you, but it also relates to the podcast. People will remember two weeks ago, I had the idea that learning from the Obama fellow, we should have a cheerful fellow. Uh, We've sort of started to trial it through my uh, running. I mean, it's actually going to be about somebody who wants to do social change. My running does not constitute social change, um, but it's a sort of slightly semi-pilot. I sort of talked about it uh on the podcast two weeks ago yeah i gave an update last week and because we got some good advice including from my friend roger in canada i was then compelled driven motivated to go out and do a 10 kilometer run last saturday i've never done a 10 kilometer run uh before it nearly went wrong because you rang me after you weren't to know after eight and a half kilometers uh, uh and i didn't answer the phone to you which i thought you would be offended about uh but i thought if i answer the phone to him you know my dreams will be crushed uh and i finished the run in 52 minutes 30 seconds i've communicated with roger who says he who agrees with me that it is not too shabby as a time, he's given me some trading tips, which I have so far failed to act on because I kind of now resting on my laurels of the 10 kilometer run, uh, <laughs> which shows this is not a sort of linear process, but it shows this podcast can be a vehicle for big change. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, Forrest Gump is the direction you're heading in. Thank you very much. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? I am going to be playing Beatles records on the radio every Sunday morning for the next 12 weeks. Wow. I was just thinking about how hard it's been this past year and just thinking that the Beatles just make everything just a tiny bit better. Just a tiny bit, sometimes more than a tiny bit better. Um, So I called up this radio station that I do an interview series for and uh, they agreed. And long story short, I'm going to be filling the airwaves with Beatles music every Sunday morning for 12 weeks uh, from 10 o'clock on Union Jack Radio. And what I want to do, obviously it's my obsession, but I just think there is real joy in their music and in their story. And that's what they gave to the world more than 50 years ago. And, and it's, it's why we're still talking about them 50 years later. So I think for people like me who love that music, they're going to enjoy it. But I really want to try and give people a sense of what was special about them and, and the, the ways in which they change music and culture and what a brilliant idea jeff genuinely i think it's, yeah and how, so is it two hours on a sunday morning yeah it's just two hours it's going to be a bunch of beetle music i'll tell you some stories i'll talk about the ways in which they're still relevant today um i'll very carefully uh, balance it so we've got the perfect balance of lennon and mccartney with ringo and george 
thrown in. So how many songs is that per two hours, would you say? It, 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 very, it depends whether you're playing Hey Jude or not, which is uh, over seven minutes long. But, you know, usually it's, it's probably like, I don't know, 15, 16 songs an hour. I'll tell you the stories. I'll play some great cover versions of Beatles songs, you know, done by soul artists and unexpected artists. And I'm going to try and just... There was just before Christmas, Peter Jackson, the film director, put out a teaser of this Beatles documentary he's been working on. And people went nuts for it because there's just there's just still joy in in them all these years later. And I want to try and give people a sense of that joy. So that's uh, that's what I'm going to be doing. Sounds brilliant. I'm I'm there. Will you miss the archers for you? Yes. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to explain exactly what the Beverage Report was, um, we're thrilled to be joined by journalist and author of The Five Giants, a biography of the welfare state, Nicholas Timmins. Hello. Hello. He's, he's the giant of beverage, Nicholas Timmins. He's the giant of the five giants. He's the giant of the five giants. No, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the sort of pygmy who sort of stands on their shoulder or <laughs> one corner of their shoulder or something. He is the definitive Mr. Beverage. Well, this is what I need, because what I feel I have is pub quiz knowledge of what the Beverage Report was. I I feel that I could quite confidently sit there and say, yes, it was uh, this report which identified the five evils in society that needed correcting, and that led to the welfare state. But in actual fact, I've got no idea who uh, Beveridge was, really. I don't know how this, how it was undertaken. I don't know about the circumstances that led to it. So I'm very pleased that we've got somebody of um, Nick's calibre to talk to us. C- can you explain just basically what the Beveridge Report was and how it came about initially. Well, Beveridge himself was an interesting character. I mean, he was sort of vain, egotistical, at the time of the appointment, a 62-year-old civil servant who'd had more careers behind him than most of us ever enjoy. I mean, he started out as a journalist on what is now the Daily Telegraph. Uh, he was recruited into government by Churchill, and Churchill was a liberal in 1989-10, and set up the first labour exchanges... Uh, he carried on being a civil servant, doing, uh, you know, uh, manpower work in the First World War. He'd been head of the London School of Economics at the time. He was master of University College Oxford. And Amazing. he was a prolific broadcaster and writer. So he was, he was very well known. And what sort of happened, you have to remember he was appointed in 41. So, you know, we kind of won the Battle of Britain. Uh, but that was about it. Uh, Hitler had invaded Russia, which was, of course, one of the great turning points of the war. At the very end, Japan attacked America, so America came into the war, but there were no victories. But there was a sense somewhere in government uh, that winning the war had to be more than just defeating Hitler. It had to be about a better tomorrow. Uh, Build back better, you don't recognise that phrase. I mean, it was kind of that sort of attitude. So they set up this committee uh, under Beveridge, who was really disappointed to get it because he wanted to organise manpower. I mean, he apparently accepted the job with tears in his eyes, not jubilation. How extraordinary. And it had remarkably boring terms of reference to sort of tidy up a bit of the mess that was there. Tidy up the mess around Social Security, is that right? Yes, though you wouldn't have called it Social Security at the time. It was a whole disparate bunch of schemes with completely illogical levels of benefit for different people. It was a rotten vessel full of holes and rotting planks. You know, you could drop through the safety nets very easily. Have the public got an expectation of what that that safety net should be at that point? Uh, Probably not to the degree that Beveridge 
framed it. I mean, basically what he did was ignore his terms of reference. Like all good people doing commissions. He exactly. Just, he kind of, he went rogue, basically. He, he, he absolutely went rogue. Um, and so he went away and he came up with this report. It, it, it consists of three bits, really. There's a foreword, 20-page foreword, and a 20-page afterword, which are, which are sort of filled with the most Churchillian and Bunyan-esque rhetoric you know, so he's, he's he, I mean, he used the word want rather than poverty. But, you know, his plan, he says, is an attack upon want. But want is only one of the five giants on the road to reconstruction. The others are disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. And so in a sense that from that you get the five arms of the welfare state, so to speak. You know, disease being the NHS, ignorance being tackling education, squalor generally taken to be housing and idleness being unemployment. Uh, and so there's this, there is this fantastic rhetoric and some great lines. The middle of the report is an attempt to design a social security system is incredibly tedious. I mean, if you wade your way through that, you're doing really well. But it's sort of bracketed by these bits at the beginning and the end that really captured the public imagination and captured a lot of what was already being talked about. And I think in some ways that's the, you know, the key thing of the beverage report. Very little in it is entirely new. What he did was corral a lot of stuff that was already going on and turn it into a sort of crusade. But there, you know, there had been big pressures for you know, improvements to what we, might, what we would now call the welfare state over the 1930s. So, I mean, there'd been discussion about a national health service for donkey's years. Uh, quite what it would look like and what it would be was far from clear, but there was a talk about the need for a national health service going all the way back to the minority report to the Royal, Port or Royal Commission in 1909. So it's the, it's the founding document of the welfare state in the sense that, you know, that famous quote about the five giants gave all these things a push, although his, his report, in fact, in detail, is really about designing the new social security bit, the social security system. And there's an idea in, in that template for a design for the social security system, um, flat rate contribution for a flat rate benefit. Now, this is is something quite different uh, to as as these um, social security systems are emerging in other European countries. This is a different way to doing things. Can you just ex- explain it to us a bit and um, just how, how radical that was at the time? Yeah, well, it was completely unradical in the sense that it was it was what was already there. So there was a, an employment benefit, and there was a minimal sort of health insurance benefit. But these were flat rate contributions in return for benefits. So, the, so he was building on what already existed, as opposed to what happened in many other European countries and indeed other countries, where they went for earnings-related systems, which typically involve earnings-related contributions. So you paid more if you earned more, and you got earnings-related benefits back in their place. Whereas beverages was a was a, a flat flat one. You know, your flat rate flat rate contributions, flat rate benefits. He kind of built a platform on which you fell back on if you became unemployed. So if, so if that is the mechanism, what are the recommendations in the report? Beverage being beverage, he made three simple, he made three assumptions. So he designed his social security system and said, well, to make this work, you've got to do three things. First of all, there has to be a national health service free of, free of charge uh, you know, for, for everybody. Universal comprehensive national health service, look after your health, no charges. Uh, he also recommended there should be family allowances, which gets a bit technical, but we can get into that if you want to. And the other was that the government would use its powers to provide full employment. 
Because if there's full employment, you can get a flat rate benefit system to work. Because most people, you know, the overwhelming number of people are going to be in work. They'll pay their contributions. If they fall out of work, they'll get their benefits. So these were the three, you know, blithely made these three assumptions. And of course, they all happened. They did indeed all happen. And was it seen as a an endorsement of the ideas of the left? Or was it seen as a mainstream proposal at the time it's a it's a kind of intriguing document because it 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 it, you remember the famous phrase from Blair's time rights and responsibilities it tries to balance rights and responsibilities so it has a sort of of interesting eclectic mix of slightly left-wing and slightly right-wing ideas produced by a man who wasn't who actually became a liberal and so it, it did sort of appear to bridge across the divides and what what's I can't wrap my head around is how excited the general public were. This is by amazing. This. It's it's baffling. Like I, I just don't feel like I live in a world where six hundred thousand people would rush out to buy uh, a, a report like this. People were queuing around the block. Jake, how did it happen? I mean, how did it happen? I mean, let's be honest. He wasn't he wasn't tweeting about it, was he? I mean, he wasn't saying looking forward to the re- release of my report later on today and tweeting, was he? I mean, well, actually, pretty much he was. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, a whole bunch of things contributed to its reception, but one was in, in you know, in, in what you might describe as a very early example of spin. He sort of started talking about it ahead of its publication, uh, and people who worked for him, like Lord Longford, were sort of leaking leaking bits of the papers in a sense to sort of build up wow. the reputation. Uh, wow. There was a bit of a battle within government about what to do about it, uh, but but you know there was a genuine feeling in government that one had to look beyond the war you know what are we fighting this war for so there was a hunger for something that would you know would reward us for what we were fighting for but the the crucial bit was there was a decision to give it huge publicity i mean shortened versions of it were were sent out of the troops in france or even dropped over germany and and occupied europe as a sign of what could be better after the war Indeed, there's a, there's a very intriguing document found in Hitler's bunker at the end of the war, which made an assessment of it and said, this is rather good. It's better than our German system of social insurance. <laughs> so it, was a pro- it became a propaganda weapon as well as, as well as something for the British people. If it, was, if it received such an excited reception, how did it then, would you say, looking at it with the long view, Nick, how did it shape the post-war welfare state? Well, well, significantly in that, I mean, the reception for it in government was mixed. Uh, Treasury, of course, as 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 is, as is normally paid to do, hated the idea of it because it would involve a lot of expenditure. Uh, Churchill sort of blew hot and cold, but there was a the drive to produce an NHS. I mean, the you know Henry Willing, a Conservative minister in the coalition government, produced a white paper about a national health service in 1944. Um, it, you know, and and that was you know, and that was full of pretty um, pretty powerful rhetoric. I mean, you know, it said that every it's opening it's opening sentences. Do you want his opening sentences? You can recognise everybody, irrespective of means, age, sex, or occupation, shall have equal opportunity to benefit the best and most up to date medical services, and it should be comprehensive and free of charge. And the benefit system, Nick. And the benefit system was, in a sense, the benefit system was beverages, big change, uh, and the Labour government more or less implemented it. 
would I be right in saying that the big change uh, that we've seen since Beveridge, the bit of his legacy that's maybe dropped away, is the whole notion of um, he, he had this notion to me of paying your stamp, paying your national insurance, and then you, you'd have these, you know, benefits kind of by right as a result as a, uh, as a result of that, not 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 means tested, so called contributory benefits, and that that's and that that's the big part of the. Um, I was reading something by the late John Hills before this um, uh, recording, and he said it's you know it's something like you know sort of death by a thousand cuts in terms of the way that that contributory system has been undermined is that is that the big change the bit he would not recognize is the is the core of the social security system which has become increasingly means tested uh, and has only a very residual bit of national insurance contribution based benefits in it the one exception to that uh, is the state pension which went on a sort of 40-year journey from becoming an earnings related one to uh, one that was linked only to prices and therefore was declining in value. But post the Pensions Commission has been rebuilt into a single basic state pension, which Beveridge would recognise, but he wouldn't recognise much of the rest of it. Now, there are calls today, Nick, which you'll have seen for a new new Beveridge report. What lessons do you think the original report offers for the world that we're in today? Yeah, well, I I can't count the number of times I've heard people saying, go back to Beveridge and... And frankly, you can't do that, um, not least um, partly because society has changed enormously and partly because the beverage report itself was this very careful balance of sort of left and right interests. And if you look at the, you know, his five giants, well, in a sense, they're all still with us and always will be up to some point. We still worry about health and education and housing and what have you. But I do think where there might be a lesson is, is in the sort of framing of it all, the way he managed to sort of capture... A, bu- a bunch of things that were already happening, a load of policies that were knocking around, already dreamt about or in place or being debated, and put them into this big picture that gave people a real sense of where it was all going to go and where they would want it to go. So that, so that ability to... So, you know, if you, if, you were, if you were saying, what should Beveridge Report be about today? Well, it wouldn't just be about the five chance, would it? You'd be talking about climate change, you'd be talking about diversity, you'd be talking about handling big tech, you know, all sorts of other issues. But I think there may, be, there may well be a lesson in the way he managed to frame a bunch of things that were already going on into one coherent narrative. And did, people, did the people buying the report, did they... Was, was it in any way guaranteed that that was the direction of travel for future government? Well, I suppose nothing in life is guaranteed, Jeff. But, but you know, there was a hugely, I mean, a massively huge reception for it when people read it. I mean, they did sell 600,000 copies. He, you know, he packed halls talking about it and said it was, you know, it was like riding an elephant, so popular was he, the People's William. You know. um, and there was enormous pressure for something to be done about all this you know, he gave a huge shove to a bunch of things that were already in train. And that's, that's not to belittle it. It's to sort of pay it the compliment of finding a bunch of things that for which there was pressure and corralling them and pushing them forward. And yeah. if, if the beverage report had not happened, would all these things have happened? Well, the honest answer to that is who knows, but probably not to the same degree. Well, look, Nick, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Um, you've, you, You've you've shone such light on uh, 
on, on beverage. We should mention that, yes, uh, if you want to find more, because it is a fascinating subject, and I feel like I've yes. learned so much. It was so surface level what I knew about beverage, but it's called The Five Giants, A Biography of the Welfare State. And it does tell the story from beverage up to about 2017, so it's not all about beverage. And we strongly recommend, we strongly recommend it. Now, to take the conversation forward and talk about today and where the welfare state might go from here, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Tanya Burkhart, who is Associate Director of the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion at the London School of Economics. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us. Really delighted to be here. Let, let's just sort of start with something relatively basic, which is what do we know about the current scale of poverty and destitution in the UK? We've heard a lot, of course, about children going hungry during periods of school closure uh, during COVID, the sort of thing that Marcus Rashford has been campaigning so successfully on. But obviously that is part of a wider picture of food insecurity in the population. And wider than that still is the problem of, of destitution, people having to skip meals or not know where the next meal is coming from, uh, not being able to keep themselves dry and warm. Very, very basic And in fact, the best estimate we have is that there are 2.4 million people in the UK, including half a million children, who had an experience of destitution at some point during 2019. That's pre-COVID. And we expect that, unfortunately, that will have gone up during the pandemic. We don't have those figures yet. But we do know, for example, that there's been a 60% increase in use of Trussell Trust food banks during the the pandemic. But in one of the richest countries in the world, I'd like to think that we can aim higher than just eliminating destitution. So that's really the kind of sharpest, severest end of poverty. I think it's important that we don't lose sight of the fact that just regular grind you down poverty matters as well. And that affects an even larger number of people. So The most commonly used definition of of poverty in the UK gives us an estimate of 14.5 million people in poverty, again, pre-pandemic. So that's more than one in five of the population as a whole. Uh, And that includes just over four million children, which is actually a quarter of all children. I mean, these are you know, mind-bogglingly awful figures, and I'm sure they'll be familiar to some of our listeners I mean, the the obvious question before we get to the effects of the pandemic around the 14 and a half million, the 4 million children in poverty is why? Well, I think there are perhaps two big reasons. Uh, one relates to work and the other relates to benefits. So we know that actually um, a significant proportion of those people who are in poverty are in families where there is at least one person in work. So we may be historically are used to thinking about poverty as being a problem of being out of work. But we now increasingly have the phenomenon in this country of in-work poverty. So the problem there is about insecure work that may come and go, things like the gig economy and zero hours contracts. So poor conditions of work as well as low rates of pay. So that's one big explanation. I think the other big explanation is what's happened to uh, the level of benefits over the last 10 years in particular for uh, families and uh, people of working age. So we've seen a steady erosion of the level of benefit paid to people of working age. 
such that somebody who is just a, a single adult would now be receiving a benefit income if they were out of work that is actually less than half of the poverty threshold. So the level of benefit that they're receiving, which is less than £100 a week, is putting them well below the poverty line. And the poverty line, sorry, Tanya, is defined as 60% of, of median income. Is that right? That's the most commonly used. There are, there are a range of different poverty lines yeah. that we can use. They all tend to paint a similar picture. Uh, the, the one that I'm referring to here that, that for those, those figures is indeed the 60% of median income. So you've painted a very, very clear picture of what's wrong at the moment. We'll come to, to what we can do to put it right. But before we do that, talk to us about COVID and what that has shown about the problems in our welfare state, even beyond what you've already what you've already uh, demonstrated? Simply the levels at which benefits are paid have been shown to be woefully inadequate. And it came as quite a shock, I think, for new claimants of universal credit, people who never thought that they would be um, receiving benefits, to discover that the cheque that they got, the payment that they got, was actually for the whole month and not just for a week, you know, £400 oh, that must be the, 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 the payment for this week. No, that's for the month. And the the realisation that the level of benefits have been eroded away um, to such an extent that it's really not possible to live on, I think has been something that's really brought a lot of people up short uh, during, during the pandemic. So we had very bad uh, levels of poverty and destitution before the pandemic, the pandemic has sort of accentuated, uh, arguably made the situation worse or has made the situation worse. Um, how does our welfare state in the UK differ from other parts of Europe? And how has that, how has that played itself out during the COVID crisis? The welfare state in the UK is sometimes described as a liberal welfare state, as opposed to a familial welfare state or corporatist welfare state. But essentially what it means is that our social security system relies more on means-tested benefits. That means benefits for which you're only eligible if your income falls below a very low threshold. And that is in distinction to, in, in contrast to, the greater reliance on social insurance, which is more typical on the continent and the rest of Europe, where you pay in when times are good, you pay in when you're when you're earning. And when you're not, when you're unemployed or when you're sick, you draw down. And that is related to the contributions that you've made whilst you're earning. Is one of the ways of describing this that it's a bit like our furlough scheme in the sense of you get a certain proportion of your previous earnings, basically? Is that is that right? Yeah, that is right. That is the principle of social insurance. I'm not sure I want to describe it as like the furlough scheme because the furlough scheme is a subsidy to employers and the employer it's at the employer's discretion who does or doesn't get it. Whereas the social insurance system is an entitlement of the individual citizen as a result of the contributions that they've made to the system. But the particular respect that you were highlighting of the payment to you being related to your previous earnings that that bit is in common between furlough and social insurance and, and and just for the sake of clarity in case it's not clear to our listeners focusing on the social security system just maybe explain the difference between 
means-tested, contributory and universal approaches? So means-tested is this idea that the amount that you get depends on having a very you having a very low income essentially next to no savings and uh, very low if not zero income social insurance is the system where you pay in when you're in work and you draw down if you're unemployed or sick or disabled or indeed in in old age as a pension and those payments are related usually to your previous earnings Avoid some of the problems of means testing, but it's got its own disadvantages, in particular that it is best suited to having a stable relationship with an employer. It's not particularly well adapted to today's gig economy, informal working, self-employment, multiple employments and so on. Uh, so it can end up being quite exclusive and resulting in what's called dualisation. Uh, in the labour market and the social security system, where you have sort of insiders who've got a nice little package, thank you very much, and outsiders who are uh, losing out. Universal benefits, on the other hand, are paid to people in a particular group. So it might be universal child benefit, universal state pension, or uh, some disability benefit. So they're simply paid to you because of your your category that you fall into, and they're not Uh, income related and they're not earnings related. One of the interesting features of universal benefits is that actually a lot of the work that the social security system does is redistributing from me to me. It redistributes from me at one time in my life to me at another time in my life. So by and large, the vast majority of what the benefit system does is to ensure that it collects contributions from me when I'm working and enables me to uh, um, be given benefits from it when I'm either a child or I'm sick or disabled or I'm elderly. Do they also help get people behind an idea? I've heard um, people in the Nordic countries talk about really the way in which they were able to get people behind the kind of maternity and paternity and and childcare policies was by making them universal because then they felt like a a good thing for everybody. Yes, I think that's a very important part of it. So a universal benefit, everybody has a stake in it. So it, it includes everybody on the same basis. It reduces social stigma. So I think universal benefits have got a lot to be said for them, particularly, as I say, because uh, when we look across people's life cycle, rather than just looking at a point in time, um, a large part of what we're trying to achieve with our benefit system is that redistribution from one part of my life to another part of my life. Now, moving on to what what fashioning a new welfare state could look like. You've already explained that the furlough system, which I think has been talked about uh, by some people as some kind of template for the future and you've you've talked about why you you don't think it's a good one what what does a different approach to social security look like one of the long-running trends in what's happened in um, our benefit system is that uh, we've continued to invest in pensioners and that's been very successful in the sense that pensioner poverty is no longer a really major issue 
in the way that it was, for example, in the, the 1950s and the 1960s. But at the same time, we've taken our eye off the ball as far as the levels, the adequacy of benefits for the working age population and children. So I think the first thing that I'd like to see is, never mind the £20 temporary uplift to universal credit, which it seems to me is an absolute no-brainer that that should be retained and, and built into the benefit system. But that's by no means sufficient. That is still leaving people way below the poverty line uh, when they're on on uh, benefits. As I say, at about half, if you're lucky, at about half uh, the, the level of the, the poverty line. Um, so I think increasing the levels of benefit, it, it's, it's very, very basic. It's not particularly exciting, um, but it's incredibly important. And then embedding that by indexing the levels of benefit in such a way that we don't allow this yawning gap to open up between average standards of living and the social minimum in the future. Now, Tanya, one idea that we've uh, featured on this podcast in fact we featured it on our first episode 179 episodes ago uh is the universal basic income um and some people have advocated for this during the crisis as somebody who's an expert on these social security questions how do you how do you regard it i think by and large i regard it as a bit of a distraction given where we are so if you had no welfare state whatsoever, if you had no social security system, you might want to think about a universal basic income as a starting point. But that's not where we are. We have a very sophisticated, elaborate social security system that's been developed over many decades to try to rough, roughly reflect people's needs. And as we've discussed, it does so very imperfectly. But we do have bits of the system that are trying to meet the needs of disabled people. We have bits of the system that are particularly for um, people who are in work. We have bits of the system that are particularly for people who have children and so on. So with a UBI, either you layer that on the top of the existing system, which is going to produce some really weird effects, including a lot of it being simply clawed back through means testing, or you scrap what we've got and start just with a flat rate UBI, which if it's kind of like for like in terms of cost, it's going to have to be set at a very low level. In neither case do I think that really addresses any of the problems that we've been discussing. So in the, uh, let's, let's call it Tanyaocracy, where do you think we should be going? The level of inadequacy um, is urgent. Uh, so before instituting some grand reform of how, I would want to see a step change in levels. Uh, that seems to me to be relatively straightforward and to be consistent with the moment that we find ourselves in. I think that there are um, good arguments for increasing the extent of universal benefits in the system. So those are benefits that are targeted to children, to disabled people, um, so that people who are um, at a time in their life when they need more support uh, can, can rely on it and dialling down the emphasis in our welfare state on means testing. But I think the other um, area that I would like to see more energy put into is um, cracking the problems with housing and affordable housing 
and the lack of joining up um, between different parts of our welfare state across health inequalities, educational inequalities, income inequalities, uh, and so on. And reimagining the welfare state as a whole, a little bit more like the analysis in that original beverage report that did make the connections across the five giants that beverage was, was trying to slay, and seeing if we can evolve more effective ways of making those connections across policy areas. My effort would go into that rather than um, tearing up what we have in the way of a structure for social security and starting from a blank sheet. Well, look, Tanya Burkhart, um, it's been incredibly enlightening to talk to you uh, and to hear about where things are and where things could go. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I see you as somebody who could who i mean i know you're going to be the overall supreme ruler and all that but i think if we gave you a terms of reference i think you might produce a best-selling report i think so i think so and then sell the film rights yeah exactly exactly what what did you think i love any episode where we talk to a historian because i always find it so fascinating why don't we do more history i, I just i every time we do any history i think why the hell don't we do more history i know because and i'll tell you something and i i had this idea in my head that beverage went and in a way that maybe the establishment didn't know about uncovered all these evils and saw the want and health inadequacies and idleness, which is of course, yeah. and, and then came back and reported people were shocked by it. And then the best minds of the day came up with solutions when in actual fact, he pulled together um, a bunch of existing ideas to, to wrap around things people were already concerned about and, and knew about. And that makes me wonder if in some ways, when we think about what a new beverage report could be, if that is what we're thinking about, it's got more in common with our episode on framing than anything else. Yeah, I was about to say he was a master of framing yeah. and a good spin doctor well before Alastair Campbell. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose to call it framing is almost to do it a disservice, not that I'm against framing, but I mean, he was t he was speaking in a big way to the moment, wasn't he? And he obviously had a lot of the detail but what people bought into was the vision not the detail i think that's right isn't mm. it and then what does that mean it feels like if it's in at least in part contingent on moment this moment feels important so what else can you learn from that in terms of presenting a vision for the future i mean i do think one thing that tanya said really resonated with me which is that lots of people I think, who've had experience of the benefit system during this pandemic have been shocked by its appalling meanness and, you know, indecency in terms of the amount people are expected to live on. Yeah, I think so. There's so much that was there before about the poverty people were, and destitution people were facing, but there's also learning as a society about not allowing us to go back to that system that was there before but but you know too too few people knew about um and i think i think i mean that's the big lesson i think the but i think i think you're right i think there's obviously big lessons to be drawn about how what they did in that era uh, of talking about the future in in a big way is something we can do again 
email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com follow us on twitter at cheerful podcast or search for our facebook page reasons to be cheerful podcast it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And for a cheerful person slot this week, we're celebrating World Book Day with children's TV presenter, qualified vet, and author of a number of books, including this new one, Protect the Planet, Jess French. Hello. 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 I don't know why I felt the need to say qualified vet there. Um, <laughs> Do you know, I mean, people always say that. Like, like there's so many of these unqualified backstreet back vets going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your favourite animal, Jess? Oh no. Um oh, I I really like primates. I originally uh qualified I originally qualified as a vet um because I wanted to work with primates. I wanted to be a gorilla vet. Um wow. so probably some kind of primate. I really like um woolly spider monkeys at the moment. I think that's just because I'm cold and I envy their woolly coats. <laughs> will they uh, will they have your arm off given the chance? Uh, oh yeah, definitely. I I've I have worked actually with some primates as a vet and they're so smart. I mean, a chimp will catch a dart midair that you're trying to shoot it with to sedate it and throw it back at you. Is wow. that right? Yeah, they wow. are insane. Yeah. What about pandas, Jess? I mean, they're super cute, aren't they? I actually, I've never seen a panda in real life. So, um, I mean, videos of them are very cute. My son has a, um, a, a very large panda um not real um cuddly panda which has sort of become our favorite cuddly toy by i mean i feel bad for the other cuddly toys i'm saying that oh no he's called pandemonium (laughs) uh, and we think he's missing china i think we're getting off the subject of this interview jeff well (laughs) let let me tell you jess i I read your book which is called protect the planet uh and it's it's a, about the climate crisis and uh, it's a great way for children to understand it. I read it with my four and a half year old this morning. He loved it so much that he became 
instantly he wanted to know more about the person who'd wrote it so we googled you um we've, we found out you're a zoologist which is what he wants to be when he grows up oh and we also found out that your dad has a bug farm yes that's right tell us about that i mean what what, what is a bug farm how did your dad come to be a bug farmer what is your role in the bug farm so I guess I was probably about, probably about um, your son's age, actually. I was probably about four when my dad first started getting into bugs. It was actually, I really wanted a pet snake. I've always loved all animals. Um, and at that point, the thing that I really wanted was a snake. Um, and so my dad had very sensibly told me that uh, if I wanted to have a reptile of some kind, then I needed to understand what responsibility came with that. So he he took me to a reptile shop sort of once a week um, and I would help out looking after all the animals to see what was involved, to see if I was ready to have a snake. And while I was there, they also had uh, some praying mantises. Um, and my dad became obsessed with these while we were there um, and started to sort of get... He, well, he, at the same time, I got my snake, got some praying mantises. And then my dad, he's one of these people that everything he touches turns into a successful business. So now he has this insect empire um, <laughs> where he has literally thousands and thousands of invertebrate species that he um, breeds and, and sells as pets. Or sometimes they're used in, um, in filming of wildlife documentaries or films wow. and things like that. So where do you vet then? Um, in Norfolk, so uh, mainly just dogs and cats, um, but I do do a bit of zoo vetting as well from time to time. Any any sort of dart throwing primates in uh, in Norfolk? I have had to do a few primate procedures. Um, the last one I did was castrating a gibbon, which was... <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Was it successful? Um, well, he doesn't have testicles anymore, so right. I suppose mm. so. Yes. So job done. Yes, exactly. Well, let's um, let's talk about the book. I know it's not the first one you've written. It's uh, it's for World Book Day, and you you sort of had this idea to write a book to talk to children about the climate crisis. Tell tell us about where that came from and and what you've learned about how to talk to kids about what we all face and and how to help fix it. Yeah, so actually, it's not my first book on um, saving the planet. Uh, it's I think it's probably my my third or fourth around that sort of topic. Um, and obviously being someone who loves animals like I do, um, it, it's something that is, is at the forefront of my mind at the moment, what we are doing to our planet and, and the plight of animals and wildlife all over the world and, and us really. I mean, you know, we're, we're all endangered by the things that we're doing to destroy our planet. I think this book is probably the most hopeful of the books that I've written. It, not necessarily because I'm feeling any more hopeful than I was previously, but um, when I've met children through the events that I've done for my other books, um, I got this this real sense of uh, of their their worry and their their fear about sort of the state of the planet. Um, and so the idea of this book really was it's about kindness, really, um, and how being kind to ourselves, to other people, to plants and animals can change the future for the positive. And and whilst it does talk about the things that we've done that are bad for the planet, I really try and focus on how we can live our lives every day in a way that will make a positive difference for the future. In this book as well, I'm, I'm trying to focus on um, not just the, the things that we can do to 
help the environment and um, the the practical things they can do in their local community, but also the things they can do for themselves to sort of to cope with the anxieties they've got about um, the che- the the problems that are facing the planet, and also how they can be nicer to other people. I thought that was really interesting. I think my my son is probably at the younger age of people who would look yeah. at him, not necessarily who it's a- aimed at. But you don't shy away from talking about uh, in- injustice, equality yeah. issues like racism, which intersect with the, yeah. the climate crisis. Which is why I felt like this theme of, of kindness and just if we can, in every action that we take and every interaction that we have with another person or an animal or a, a plant or your local environment, if you can have kindness in mind when you think about how to act, then generally that you know that sh- sh- guides you in how to, to act without really having to know specifically what to do. We, sh- we should let you go. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. The 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 book is great. As I say, I had great, real fun reading it with Definitely. my Definitely, I'm going to show it to my kids as well. But but typically, because as I said, he's a bit young. What what if if people listen to this and think, oh, I'd really like to buy something that sets that out for my children. That sounds like the perfect book. What 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 sort of age uh, do you think it's it's best suited for? I mean, I think for four or five year olds, there's they, they'll get something out of it, um, and it's, it's something that you know, they can grow into and, and pick out the bits that they can use now. Um, but probably six plus, I mean, they pro- could probably start looking at it on their own and, um, and and onwards, really. I mean, I've got adult friends who've read it and said they've learned something. So hopefully something for everyone. Brilliant. Jess French, thank you very much. Thanks. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we are in the outro back to Obama uh, we inspired his podcast and he has inspired us to introduce a fellowship we said last week that we'd mentioned an email yes, we'd received from yes. Jane Atkinson yes. who says um, the, the idea of cheerful scholarships yeah. struck a chord in, in my heart because politics over the past two decades has killed off the UK teaching of lace making, my livelihood, which has taken me all over the world. Uh, she says, I've now set up a new online resource with international colleagues to support other lace makers working in what is now a new art form, albeit one you may not have heard of, and says that she could, if she had a fellowship, she could voice the frustration that so many lace makers feel. Lace classes wow. which, uh, have benefits like keeping your brain supple, uh, keeping ties to community strong. And um, she says, look what outside interests do to refresh the spirits, like Ed cycling, cold water swimming and running. They're making you a new man. That's what lace making could do for me, perhaps, for example. How interesting. That is yeah. inter- I didn't know that the art of lace making had been so... Um, Jane Jane does go into the detail of it because we're a bit long this week. We can't really get into it, but um, she did write an article called "Lace and Politics" about right. it. If you want to email us with your idea as to why we should grant you a cheerful fellowship or just generally stuff about the podcast, ideas you've got, thoughts you've got, yeah, and you can sign up for our um, newsletter too. You can go to the website cheerfulpodcast.com. and we want people to rate and review us nicely, don't we, on their podcast. Yes, please. Greatly appreciated. Uh, Shall we thank our guests? Yes, we shall. I'd like to thank Nick Timmins and Tanya Burkhart. And thanks to Jess French for humouring us with all our questions about animals and also telling us about her book for World Book Day, Protect the Planet. Emma Caution produces our podcast, Joel Pierce. 
You know him from his star turn last week. Uh, he does all the uh, research on the topics and finds our guests with backup from Jack Jeffrey and Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. We salute our friends at Left Foot Forward, by the way. Um, now, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Mustachio. He's been the walrus, lightning, did we even decide? And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.